Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Following the 2016 elections, there are many unanswered questions about what issues will dominate the agenda for our new president and Congress. In an eight part series, Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek's Washington, D.C. policy professionals and attorneys discuss their perspectives on the biggest issues facing the next administration. Brownstein's strategic advisors Barry Jackson and former Senator Mark Begich moderate bipartisan discussions on the first 100 days of Trump's presidency, as well as pressing issues like immigration, health care, financial services, tax and trade, education, infrastructure, and marijuana policy. In this episode, Policy Director Michael Levy discusses President-elect Donald Trump's plan for trade policy and what his plan to achieve GDP growth would look like. This is Mark Begich. Uh, I've served in the U.S. Senate from Alaska for six years, been a mayor of uh, Anchorage, Alaska, been on the local city council and also in the business world for many years. So I joined the Brownstein firm almost two years ago, and it's been a pleasure. And uh, the topics that we cover are enormous. So I'm just glad to be here to be able to have a conversation with so many talented folks. Well, thanks, Mark. I'm Barry Jackson, and along with Mark, I serve as co-chair of the strategic practice here at Brownstein. I'm one of only two people that have served as chief of staff to the Speaker of the House and senior staff to the President of the United States. And along with my colleague here, Mark, I think we can provide you a pretty interesting back and forth about the role of the Congress and the role of the White House as a new administration and a new Congress takes place. So let's dive in. We're happy to welcome back Michael Levy. Um, talk about taxes and trade. Michael served as Assistant Secretary of Ledger Affairs at the U.S. Department of Treasury. He was a senior advisor to Secretary Bob Rubin, and he served as Chief of Staff to Senator Lloyd Benson, probably one of the best versed financial services tax experts in town with all your years. Michael, thank you for being with us. Great to be here again. Let's start with taxes, because um, everybody seems to think that taxes is, is is the number one economic growth driver that's going to happen. For two years, Republicans and Democrats on the Hill have seemed to have some kind of consensus about how this all works. But now it seems the issue is much bigger than just corporate reform. And they're talking about using this process that nobody really understands, reconciliation, so they can get a tax bill through. Do you want to tell us just a little bit about what the heck they're talking about, reconciliation and taxes? Well, reconciliation is a, a budget procedure. It's been around for a long time, uh, since 1980. It is a, a way to circumvent the 60-vote point of order in the Senate primarily, although it has a lot of other uh, aspects to it. The critical one is you can beat a filibuster. You don't have to worry about a filibuster. So you can get 50 votes and the vice president in the Senate, and that's all you need. And in fact, that's how Bill Clinton passed his first uh, first big budget bill. He did it with the vice president's vote being the deciding vote. Uh, it's been used by any number of presidents. There have been 20 reconciliation votes, I think, since 1980, but n not all of them have been signed into law. Uh, but we now have a perfect storm, uh, which we've had on a number of other occasions. Uh, a, a president, a, a House, and a Senate all controlled by the same party. So it's an ideal time to use reconciliation. And uh, the leadership has already said it's going to do tax reform under reconciliation. So under reconciliation, can the tax bill be as big as they want it to be? 
It's a complicated <laughs> question. You know, the, the, the rules have changed on reconciliation a number of times uh, and, 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 and at certain times because its original purpose was to do deficit reduction. There have been times when the rules have been such that you couldn't increase the deficit using, no matter what you did. It's limited the spending changes and revenue changes, not changing legislative language if it doesn't have either a spending, you know, like a, an entitlement spending uh, effect or or an effect on on uh, taxes, but both the House and the Senate since uh, 2011 have at different times changed their rules. So now you can increase the deficit uh, and do cha- tax changes or entitlement changes. So uh, if if they're not more spending, so in this case, I think you could see a tax cut that wasn't revenue neutral and it would still be allowed under reconciliation but if it's explodes after 10 years traditionally they haven't done it they've put limits on when the when the taxes expire the tax changes that expire so that whatever the changes are that are consistent with the budget resolution they they stay in effect for 10 years or it could be 5 years but usually reconciliation bills have a 10 year window for scoring and that's what's been taken seriously so um, you know you heard during the campaign you heard now in the transition period, that the whole idea of tax reform, corporate tax reform, can we look at a bill that's going to be corporate, small business, individual? Is it, is it going to be that? Is it going to be a, a you know push and pull to do the whole thing all at once, or are we going to see just kind of? Everyone talks the the big game, but then shrinks it down to this a small few right. pieces. That's always the question when you do tax reform. Mm-hmm. Tax reform is very, very hard to do because it's great to talk about, you know, broaden the base, get rid of loopholes. It all sounds cool until you realize someone else's loophole is your lifeblood. And then the opposition begins, and then you begin to slim it down. But what I do you think, think – What do you think of the target – you mentioned loopholes. We'll say deductions, loopholes. What are the ones that are on the on the board? You might. Well, say? I think the bulk of them are not things that you would consider loopholes. Okay, so let's just take the single biggest one in the House blueprint that uh, Chairman Brady put out: eliminate deductibility of interest on mortgages. Oh or no, this is all business. So, so a business can currently deduct as an ordinary business expense. Right. It's not a tax expenditure. It's an ordinary business expense, interest on their debt. Right. This eliminates the deductibility of interest. It, they'll probably retain some kind of ability to do it with your mortgages, but they'll curtail it, so it'll be cut back down. Uh, and, and I think the, the home building industry will fight that. But, well, but the small business community who uses But, but on the deductibility <laughs> of, of interest for businesses, yeah, that, will be. that will be huge. And I think you, you hit the nail on the head there. It's going to be small businesses that really can't use equity financing. It's going to be businesses that are growing but don't have a lot of collateralized assets. And they, and can't, not, and they don't have enough cash flow and they're not liquid it, it, enough. Precisely, all those things. And they, they often have to go into the mezzanine market with very high interest rates. And not to be able to deduct that really hurts their ability to grow. So I think the, the deductibility of interest uh, is going to be a big issue. Now, I think from the perspective of the Ways and Means Committee drafters, being able to expense 100 percent, which is in their bill and is very popular, is seen by them as something that will offset that burden. But again, if you're not a highly capitalized com- company with a lot of things to depreciate, that will not offset it. So you'll, it's, so it's going to have winners and losers without a doubt. And we can go 
go more into the House bill because I think right now that's the agenda. Is that the driver, you think, the I House think it's bill? the driver because I think what it's, it, they can incorporate some of the things that the president has said. And the president's commitments on this are uh, – the president-elect's commitments on this are not 100 percent clear. And, you know, they're – So, yeah. so one thing, listening to you, Michael – one might come to the conclusion that you're arguing for a VAT tax. And, <laughs> and one of the things that we know in Chairman Brady's bill is border adjustability. Yeah. So, so tell me, how do you navigate so that? I'm not, I'm not arguing for anything. <laughs> you know, uh, I, you know uh, I'm just a, you know, a lousy guy in a suit. You know? But, but uh, I, I, uh, I think that um, uh, the Brady bill is really ingenious. And if you are an economist almost of the left or the right, almost of any stripe, you would argue that consumption taxes, if offsets are done correctly to to help those that are hurt the most by it, can actually be a a, a more dynamic way to tax, both much more efficient and and uh, much more encouraging of, of of investment and other things than than uh, income, corporate income taxes. You have less incentive to send profits abroad and and so on and so forth. You know less incentive to ship in, intellectual property abroad. So I think some kind of a, a, a um, consumption tax along the lines that Chairman Brady is talking about will get a very very strong hearing. Now the. The, you raised the issue of border adjustability. I think there are a whole series of issues. Uh, his is called a destination cash flow border-adjusted tax, and it becomes basically something that taxes entities that come into the country and then eliminates that tax for entities that go out of the country, and they would do it at a much lower rate than the current corporate income tax rate, and it will be much, much harder to dodge. And, and that would be coupled with full expensing and with territoriality. So if you have assets abroad and you're earning those assets abroad, they won't be subject to U.S. tax once there's been a one-time deemed repatriation at very low rates that allow you to transition to the new system. So I see that as very interesting. I do think, though, that there's going to be a huge question of whether it's WTO legal, and I think it will be a huge question of about businesses that oppose it. So, for example, many, many more people are employed in the retail industry today than are employed in manufacturing. So this is, might be very good. At least it appears to be very good for manufacturers. But it may really cost a lot of jobs on the retail side. Walmart will oppose it. Walmart, you know, is going to influence two senators from Arkansas. So if it's if you, you need to get every Republican vote in order to pass it, you're going to have a problem right off the bat with or you might. I'm just hypothesizing with two arguments. You already get to a 50 Yeah, that's right. It's going to hurt most chain drugstores that sell high percentages of generic drugs. It's going to hurt the oil industry, which is constantly shifting where it brings its oil from when it needs to refine and where it refines. Peak times in the summer, they might do a lot of their refining in Jamaica, bring it back to the U.S. All of a sudden, it's going to be subject to attack that that wouldn't happen in a domestic producer. Now, conversely, and this might be very appealing to the Trump uh, administration and very appealing to Democrats, sort of biased toward – at least it appears to be biased toward domestic manufacturers. And the reason I use appears to be is that you can get a lot of economists to explain to you how once you get, you know, currency effects and all kinds of other things, it doesn't favor uh, domestic producers. But I don't agree with that. 
Uh, let's put it this way, I'm not convinced by that. And I think on top of that, I, you're going to have some real WTO issues. So you asked me about a VAT. VATs are WTO legal. It might be an artifact of history from when the U.S. was powerful in the 1950s and needed to help Europe recover. But VATs are, are, uh, are WTO legal. So I could imagine a situation where the Senate wants to imprint this bill, the House you know, does something like the Brady Bill, and it morphs over time into something more like a a VAT. You can't deduct payroll under a VAT, but you could do a VAT effectively, and and a certain type of VAT leave consumers, out, ordinary consumers out, and I could see that. So this, this whole tax discussion of the last few minutes. Uh, firmly planted your feet into the trade agenda also. So as you sit here and you talk about VAT, border adjustability, uh, you know, WTO, how does this tax debate going to impact on what President Trump is out there talking about with the trade agenda? Right. So I I believe that uh, he'll find it attractive for that reason, because let's say he's really not capable or chooses not to or doesn't really want to pursue quite as aggressive a trade agenda as he's articulated in the campaign. By the way, let's just say he may want to, right? But let's say he doesn't really want to do that much. And I know within his team there's a huge amount of dissent about how they manage all those expectations and what they really want to do. But hypothetically, this is something that really would give him right off the bat to say something like, well, I promise you this tariff on foreign goods, I've given it to you. Uh, now, that won't stand up well in the WTO if someone replays it, if it, if it there's, goes into some kind of dispute mechanism. But I think that, that could be viewed as popular. The, always the problem with the VAT is, and this would be true of this, this tax as well, is it's a consumption tax. So the assumption is it, it always goes down to the average consumer one way or another gets passed through. Uh, I don't know uh, if that will resonate or not, but uh, but it definitely gets you into the the trade arena. And I, the world's existing trade regime is under a great deal of stress now. It's in stress in Europe. It's really in stress in Eastern Europe. It's now under stress in the United States. Let me ask you, Michael. You you, you now kind of moved into this uh, again this broad trade issue. He's the president likes talked about revisiting NAFTA aggressively doesn't like TPP, uh, you know, kind of a shopping list of uh, kind of the global uh, market that the United States has come. Do you think, one, he'll back down off of some of that activity and try to use other avenues? Will he, I think Congress will be kind of a mixed bag on it because some are free traders, but now some have completely changed from what they were two years ago. What what happens with all these? Because I can tell you, and you've probably heard it too, when you talk to foreign leaders or people who do business overseas, uh, they're very concerned what this all means. They don't know what the the future is in business back right. and forth. So one, what do you think is going to happen well, in the I, I don't know what's going to happen. So uh, oh, I, it, it, would be, it would be utter hubris on my part to suggest that I did. Uh, and I would, I would suggest that no one knows. Uh, but uh, one, one of uh, the president-elect's uh, transition leaders yesterday said, of course, he's for keeping NAFTA. We just want to make some adjustments. Now, was he speaking really for uh, president. the president-elect or not? I don't know. I think the president-elect absolutely wants to get into some kind of a negotiating process over NAFTA where there are changes, 
it's been around for a long time, right? NAFTA was negotiated in the late 80s. It was, uh, uh, it was passed in the early 90s. It's been a long time. Yeah, it's 20 so, plus years. Yeah, so there's, you have, there's plenty of room to change. And there are things that the Mexicans and the Canadians want, and there are things that we want. And I could see those changes being made. Just for example. Maybe, maybe not as radical as maybe he campaigned on, but... It's time to negotiate them. Well, and they may not. They may not even even be anything that, that connects to the things, the idea, the, the concerns he expressed during the campaign. I'll give you an example. One of the things that was absolutely off bounds in 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 the NAFTA negotiations was the independence of Pemex, the the Mexican oil and gas company. Well, they have a lot of problems right now. The collapse in the price of oil have left them terribly undercapitalized. They need more revenue. They're going to need to get that in part from joint ventures with with other entities. I could see the whole oil and gas section of NAFTA being reopened because it's good for the Mexicans and the United States. Mm-hmm. Now, does that bring steel jobs back to Youngstown, Ohio? Probably not. But you couple that with with some kind of a, 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 a tax on incoming goods, and maybe that makes a, a good argument, you know, that you've addressed some of these issues. In, in the trade issue, if you could say in the Senate and the House, who are, you know, as, as we have folks that um, Brownstein has as clients that are listening today, uh, who are the key players in the sense of the, the trade in Congress? We know in in the Trump administration, where that is, but in the Congress, who are the kind of the, the players that will help drive this or well, manage well, this, well, you, you might you say? Well, you begin with the, the people who have the, 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 the authority. So you have the Ways and Means Chairman, Kevin Brady. You have uh, Richie Neal, who will be the, the incoming Democrat, who uh, will be important on this if you need Democratic votes. And you'll need Democratic votes on any changes in, in trade. Uh, obviously, Ron Wyden, who comes from a very pro-trade background and a very pro-trade state, a coastal state, uh, Orrin Hatch, of course, uh, chairman of Senate Finance. So, and then you have people like on, on the Democratic side, like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, who will, will go in hard. Uh, Sherrod Brown, who's not on the committee, but will go on very, very hard on trade and on the Democratic side. And, you know, there'll be some Republicans who are... Yeah, that have yeah. the, the populist belief. That's that. right. And in the House, there's, there has been, over the last 15 years, a growing Southern contingent, especially, of Republicans who are very, very opposed to liberalizing trade. You can see some trade. interesting coalition. You can. And, of course, this, this election shows that in the Rust Belt, you're going to have Democrats and Republicans alike from Ohio all the way, you know, Indiana and Illinois, everybody in Michigan and Wisconsin, all of whom will be asking themselves, you know, to what extent do I want liberalized trade or to what extent I want to really push back. And then you're going to have all the people who are committed to globalization fighting like the Dickens to not unravel it. And uh, I, be, if, if it were merely interesting and nothing but that, it, it, this will be a very, very interesting time. It will be more than that because if done badly, it could really precipitate the kind of of cascading trade retaliations that really bring the international economy to a grinding halt. And I think no one wants to do that. We saw it in the 1930s. We don't want to see it again. So let me, let me our, our last question here before we wrap up, you use the word interesting times, which leads me to the number one villain of all of this is, it seems to be China. So could you just spend a little bit of time wishing for these interesting times? What do you think is most important on the trade agenda in addressing this concern about China's role in the markets? 
So we're caught in a contradiction, which is that um, the TPP is temporarily dead, and yet it was designed to be one of the most important aspects of our anti, not anti-China policy, but reigning in China. Rebalancing. That's right, rebalancing. So the, 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 the pivot toward Asia was uh, largely, the, the, the centerpiece of the pivot to Asia was to have a trade agreement that brought in everybody but China and established the U.S. trading rules as the appropriate rules on subsidization and uh, um, workers' rights and environmental rights and all kinds of things, so that when the Chinese came into it, they would come into it into more of a high-end uh, trading system rather than a, a rather low-end trading system, which is not to to our interests. It's not to Japan's interests. And, and so it, 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 it really is a problem. So I, And I think the, the, all of the, the Chinese economic issues will get also wrapped up into other geopolitical issues in China. So it'll, it'll get wrapped up into the, the South China Sea and who's the hegemony there, what our uh, new role Taiwan. is or isn't toward <laughs> Taiwan. And I think uh, these are all going to be sorted out uh, uh, together. And hopefully his team will not view the economic and the military and the geopolitical issues as separate. They may act on them separately, and they may choose to segment them. But I, it's important, I think, that they understand the interaction of all of them. One of the things that took a very important had a very important role among intellectuals, at least, uh, thinking about this during the campaign was the issue of uh, currency manipulation. And without a doubt, the Chinese have been uh, have done a lot to keep their currency devalued over most of the relationship since uh, the late 90s and, and then when they formally came into the WTO in the, in the early 2000s. But they're currently probably manipulating their currency up, not down, because they're afraid of capital flight and, and, and other things. So I believe that uh, this is going to take a very sober s- set of decisions on our part and on their part. And uh, if if the, too much of it becomes a question of who's publicly gaining leverage versus who's publicly losing face, you have a situation that's culturally untenable. Uh, if both of them do a little bit of that, but they're smart enough to take two steps back and then work out differences, we might work it out. I mean, there are people probably, you know, there are people who who have always thought that the U.S. and Russia— should become closer over time and then use that pressure against China. That certainly has not been uh, the, the uh, Obama administration's orientation, but they have wanted a pivot to China, uh, to Asia, that does show the Chinese that that's not going to be their pond. And I think working these things through, none of these things are isolated, and they're all integrated, and geopolitics is inter- integrated with trade. One of the reasons people in this country are angry about trade is that the interests of workers have often been sacrificed to geopolitics. And I think they, they said in this election, we don't want that. Uh, but on the other hand, most people don't want us to, to have no weapons vis-a-vis uh, the rise of, of Chinese power in, in the Pacific, because that also will hurt the U.S. in the long term and our living standards in the long term. So I think this is a delicate balancing act, and it'll take some intelligence and hopefully to have the right people to do it. Well, so, Michael, it, it sounds like we've got our wish. May we live in interesting times, both when it comes to taxes and trade. I'd like to thank you for joining us. All of your experience, awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Great to see you guys again. 
Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.